0: Michael Pollan uh, has been at Town Hall, by my reckoning, four times, but this is the first time we've ever presented him Town Hall ourselves. So he's the author of seven previous books, five of them, 2013's Cooked, Food Rules from 2009, 2008's In Defense of Food, The Omnivore's Dilemma, A Natural History in Four Meals from 2006, and The Botany of Desire, A Plant-Side View of the World. Those books share the distinction of all being New York Times bestsellers. He's a longtime contributor to the New York Times Magazine, and he teaches writing at Harvard and the University of California, Berkeley. In 2010, Time Magazine named him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Ingrid K. Walker is Associate Professor of American Studies at the University of Washington, Tacoma. Her current research engages drug users about their experiences developing a language to talk about drugs outside of the framework of medicalization or criminalization. Her writing has been published in the Journal of Popular Culture, Nano, uh, publications of the Alcohol, Drug, and History Association, and other industry um, um, industry publications. She's the author of High Drugs, Desire, and a Nation of Users. I'm not high, by the way. I just went up on my line there. Sorry. High Drugs, Desire, and a Nation of Users, which was published in 2017. Michael's book is called How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence, and it's the occasion for the conversation tonight. Please join me in welcoming Ingrid K. Walker and Michael Pollan. Thank
1: you. Thank you very much.
2: Good evening. Thank you for being here. Um, I want to share a personal moment because... Uh, 15 years ago, I started on my book project. It was a forever project. I'm not as fast as he is. Because I read The Botany of Desire, and it was uh, revolutionary in terms of thinking about, yes, we should be talking about desire when we talk about drugs. So it's such a pleasure to be here with you tonight and to come full circle. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's really great. I am super excited about How to Change Your Mind. I got an advanced copy. I've read it. And I just want to say it's a spectacular read because you populated this history of the first wave and second wave of psychedelic research with these fascinating characters. And they are funny, and they are fun, and they are curious. and So I think you're going to really love the book. But the thing that you did that I think is so important is you went there. You decided to be a participant observer, which I'm a cultural studies scholar, and that's a really important piece of work in my field to not think that you can be objective about something, that you have a stake in what you're writing about. So I really appreciate that you put yourself inside the study
1: well there was no question that uh, you know that i would do that i mean it's kind of for a lot of reasons one is the psychedelic experience is, is very hard to understand from the outside and um and i was hearing things from these volunteers and patients in these drug trials who were they were getting psilocybin which is the uh, ingredient in magic mushrooms and what they were telling me was so uh, implausible these 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 transformations in, in, in their worldview after a single session. Then I, I was, um, I felt I couldn't, I couldn't explain it without having the experience myself. Yes. And then there's the fact that that's how I do journalism. Uh, you know, when I was writing about the cattle industry for <laughs> Omnivore's Dilemma, I bought a steer. And uh, when I was writing about architecture in a place of my own, I built a house and learned how to bake and make cheese. And I mean, this is what I do. And it's kind of, uh, and it's what I love about journalism is that you can find a place to write about something from inside that conveys a sense of wonder and uh, f- first sight, fresh seeing that you can't get, either as someone who's very experienced or someone who's totally inexperienced. Yeah. So it was, it, there was never a question that I would, I would do that, so although you- I was very afraid of doing it. I have to say.
2: Which is really part of the narrative and it's threaded through the book really elegantly. Reluctance, it, it, <laughs> it's a
1: very important theme.
2: Um, honesty, I would say honesty. So I, I think our, culturally we suffer from a lot of misinformation about drugs and users and drug use. Uh, criminalization has been really effective for 50 years and, and creating a lot of misinformation. So it's just so great, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm out as a user in my work and I think more people should be if they are users because I think it normalizes it, and so, um, so, so you normalize it. Well, it's interesting,
1: it. I found that, um, you know, I, was, I had a lot of trepidations, I mean, at every stage, but including <laughs> publishing this book, where I do talk about these experience, uh, experiences I had, and I've been going on national television and, and national radio, and I didn't know how people were gonna deal with that, and, um, but I found something that I should have known, but that if, if you can speak about this in a very matter-of-fact way, people respond in a matter-of-fact way. And you remove some of the stigma attached. Um, and uh, so I found that it is possible to have a pretty normalized conversation where you're just looking at these, okay, let's, let's leave aside all the moralism and even the legal questions. And is, what kind of tool is this? Is this a good tool? Can this, can this heal people? Um, is, it, is it how safe, how dangerous? You know, let's just like have a sane conversation as if it were a, a legal drug. And um, it's... And I've been really heartened by the fact that there's, from my limited sample, over, I've only had, this book's been out for a week, um, that there's, so, you know, things could change next week and the, the police could show up, um, but um, uh, thus far, um, I've been very heartened by the fact that, you know, maybe we are ready to have a new kind of conversation.
2: I think we are. I think we are. And I, I'm grateful. In fact, uh, today I was talking to, we were talking about a colleague we know, Ismail Ali, who's an attorney for MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Study. And he was talking about that as he, as he goes around the country. He's realizing that people are more receptive, and possibly it's because of need, which I think you
1: talked yeah. about quite a bit. In that well, I, I think that that's very important. The fact is that um, one of the things I learned in the course of researching this book is that mental health care in this country is really broken. Um, it, it, it only reaches about half the people who need it. Uh, rates of depression, suicide, addiction are all soaring. Uh, people are suffering and, um, and we have very few tools for them. The last big innovation in mental health care is the introduction of the SSRI antidepressants and that takes you back to I think 1986 or seven. Um, and since then there's been very little innovation. Um, So uh, One of the things that surprised me is even the psychiatric establishment has been very curious uh, and interested in this research to see whether uh, psychedelic drugs, um, which were researched very closely in the 50s, there was a very promising period of research long before the 60s explosion um, that showed that that they may may have something to offer us, Um, and then it was suppressed. And we had 30 years where nothing happened in this research. And now it's, there's a renaissance, it's, it's being revived. So, um, so there's reason to be you know, guardedly hopeful.
2: Well, and I think one of the interesting parallel developments, and you, and you allude to this at several points, is that just as, um, so all this promising research happens in the 50s, which we'll talk about in a moment, uh, very effective. The fe- efficacy of, of the early studies was off the hook and, and almost unbelievable and then people were so exuberant about the drugs that it started to seem not possible. Well, that's possible. an
1: occupational hazard, uh, over-exuberance <laughs> around psychedelics. It, there's <laughs> something about them and you end up Timothy Leary. You, t- you get turned into an <laughs> evangelist and I, I'm working very hard not to do you're that. You're keeping
2: a straight face. <laughs> I think you're smiling more, I'm just going to say. But I think the thing that's interesting is that so so the American Psychological Association kind of really, it, I write about this in my book, they went, they went toward those pharmacological solutions and turned away from this, but now we're seeing that the efficacy of those drugs is not what we thought it was yeah. over long ter- term, right? So yeah. it makes sense that Well, culturally- yeah,
1: I mean, the SSRIs, there was just a big uh, meta-analysis that found that they uh, only work slightly better than placebos. I'm sorry if I'm ruining your SSRI for you. Um, and that people, you know, and that their effect fades over time, and, that, and that's why people are switched from one to another and that they're hard to get off and they have a lot of side effects people don't like. They're not, they're not a great tool, it's what we have. Um, so anyway, yeah, we're, I mean, I think that the door is open. For do you wanna, since we're
2: talking about the, the lack of efficacy there, do you wanna talk a little bit about some of the studies and what's been found most recently?
1: Yeah, I mean, I should, yeah, I should, I should um, describe this a little bit about what is this research and how I got into it. Um, Cause you probably know me as someone who writes about food and um, although mushrooms apply in both stories, <laughs> Um, different kinds of mushrooms. Um, so the, the research that caught my eye, and this is in 2010, uh, was a study where researchers at NYU and Johns Hopkins were giving psilocybin, the ingredient in magic mushrooms, to cancer patients, people with terminal diagnoses, um, or very serious diagnoses, uh, to help them deal with what the researchers called their existential distress. The fear, um, anxiety, and depression that it can accompany a cancer diagnosis. and um, uh, That seemed really bizarre to me. I, I can't imagine myself faced with that diagnosis that I would want to trip. Um, that it seemed that that loss of control and the, and the fact that you would no doubt end up dwelling on your death, it all seemed terrifying. Um, so I decided I wanted to look into it, and I began interviewing people in these trials, uh, both at NYU and Hopkins. And I heard the most astonishing stories from them. Um, they would have a single um, psychedelic trip, and I, I should explain how it happens, because the image in your head of a psychedelic trip is like maybe, if you have an image in your head, it's, a, it's, it's kids taking a handful of mushrooms and going to a concert, or taking a tab of acid and walking around the woods. or. Um, But this is very different. This is a a guided, highly controlled administration of the drug and it's not just an administration of the drug. One of the things that's novel about this is uh, it joins talking therapy to pharmacology in a way that we haven't done um, uh, very much in the past. So uh, you're working with a guide, in fact, in these above-ground trials, um, uh, two guides, a man and a woman, usually, and um, they prepare you uh, in a series of sessions uh, for what to expect. And they tell you what to do if, 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 you, if it gets really scary, if it takes a dark turn. And most of their advice revolves around the idea of surrendering to what's happening and that people get into these panic reactions or paranoia when they're resisting things like the utter dissolution of your sense of self, which can be scary, Um, and I understand that. Um, But if you surrender to that, uh, it can be quite blissful, actually. Um, And so they tell you things like, if you see a staircase, climb up it. If you see a door, open it. If you see a path to the basement, go into the basement. Um, If you see a monster, step right up to it and say, what are you doing in my mind? Don't try to run away. Uh, relax your mind and float downstream, they often quote John Lennon, Um, and uh, so that's part of it. And then they also ask you to set an intention. Uh, Do you want to confront your mortality and think about that? Do you want to work on your addiction or some habit, or do you just want to learn something about your mind? Uh, And the intention, since the drugs are so heavily influenced by set and setting, that is your inner and outer environment when you're, when you're taking them. And, and that's something very unusual. It's, it's true of all drugs to some extent, but it's particularly true of psychedelics. Um, the expectations with which you approach the experience will often um, shape it. Um, and so then during the experience, you, you, you're given a pill or if you're doing it with a, a mushroom, you'd get a much certain quantity of dried mushrooms. And they sit with you the whole time. They say very little, um, but they're there. They're kind of like ground control. You know, while you're, while you're out wandering in space, they're looking out for your body. And so you can feel safe. And it's really important to feel safe in order to surrender. right? Because one of the things that happens, and we can talk more about this, is that your defenses are, are lowered or even eliminated. So you're in a very vulnerable space psychologically. Um, and, and you'll only do that if you're really safe. F- you feel physically safe and psychologically safe. And that's what a good guide does. Um, and it takes a lot of training to get good at this. Um, then after the experience, so during the experience, if you get really upset, they'll hold your hand or help you get a glass of water or take you to the bathroom, um, and it goes on for about six hours. And um, One of the reasons they use psilocybin and not LSD, which would work similarly, there are two main reasons. One is it's a shorter trip on psilocybin. And, the therapist can get home for dinner. And um, LSD can go on for 12 hours, so it's more than a shift uh, for any caregiver. Uh, and the other is, of course, LSD has so much more political and cultural baggage. Um, there, so few people know the word psilocybin. You know, they, Many people don't know how to pronounce it. So it's hard to imagine that congressman standing up and railing about the fact that we're giving psilocybin to our cancer patients. Um, whereas LSD, they could make some hay out of um, so then after the experience, um, uh, you come back for what is called an integration session. And the guides um, uh, have you tell the story of what happened. And you try to make sense of it, because it can be very confusing sometimes. And, um, and underline themes that are, that are perhaps important. This is where just being a good therapist comes in. And also figure out how can you apply what you saw or learned to the conduct of your life. Um, What can you take forward from it? Because obviously you're not going to remain in a psychedelic state. Um, So that's the guided uh, uh, treatment. Um, And the effects on people were were remarkable, not in all cases, um, but in something like 80% of the cases, people had um, statistically significant reductions in standard measures of anxiety and depression. Uh, an effect size, this is one of the ways you measure the effectiveness of a drug, but in an effect size um, that was off the charts. Um, and, you know, one of the, one of the psychiatrists involved said, we have, I've never seen a psychiatric intervention like this. So then the question was, well, what happened? How did this work? And I'll just tell you one story, a quick story to give you a sense of uh, the kinds of experiences people have. There was a woman I interviewed um, named uh, Dinah Baser, and she, is a, she was 60, 60, 61. She was a figure skating instructor in, in New York City, and she had ovarian cancer, and she was treated successfully. And, um, but the fear of recurrence was so... Uh, debilitating to her. She was truly paralyzed. She could not go about her life. She just was afraid she had this thing in her and it was going to come back and she was going to die. And so she, saw, she She heard about this, this uh, trial at NYU and she enrolled and she had uh, a guided trip. And she went into her body in the trip, imaginatively, and, um, and she saw this black mass under her ribcage. So it wasn't her cancer, she realized. Um, and, but she realized what it was. It was her fear. And there it was. And she um, she's a very timorous woman, very timid woman, and small, and nevertheless, when she saw it, she screamed out loud, get the fuck out of my body. <laughs> and, and you know, the, the therapists are like, whoa. Because um, they, they didn't know where she was or what, what, you know, what happened. And they thought maybe she was talking to her cancer, but she was talking to her fear. And she said the fear vanished. And I wrote about this in this first piece I did called The Trip Treatment in the New Yorker. Um, And I said in the Weasley way of journalists, you know, her fear of death was substantially diminished or something like that. And the New Yorker fact checkers, who are famously, you know, zealous, uh, they called her and they said, Is this true? Was your fear of death substantially diminished? And she said, No, that's completely wrong. It was extinguished. It was eliminated. She had no more fear of death. And she told me, she said, I understood for the first time that I can't control the cancer, but I can control my fear. And that was such an empowering idea for her. And that points to one of the interesting qualities of this experience, um, which is that the insights you have, whether profound or banal, have an authority. They're, they're, they're not just opinions or ideas, they're like revealed truths. This is a quality that William James wrote about uh, over a hundred years ago. He called it the, the noetic quality of this, the mystical experience. And, um, and you can act on these beliefs. Um, and so that's the kind of thing I was seeing. And uh, became intensely curious to have such an experience myself. Um, but it was wonderful to see... These people who were really up against it, um, getting this kind of relief, and and I talked to many, uh, and and some had, you know, miraculous changes, w- died with equanimity. Uh, one person I profiled in particular uh, had a remarkable death that he directly attributed to this experience, and others were, you know, their 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 fear and depression were were um, not eliminated necessarily, but reduced. So it was a very, these results were just published a year ago, and um, so it's that kind of thing. And the same treatment is being used for people with addictions. Uh, there's a really interesting study of smoking uh, at Johns Hopkins and alcohol addiction at NYU, and there will be soon studies for depression in the, in the larger population, uh, be, precisely because such a strong signal was seen in this particular group. Um, so it's a very exciting line of research and, uh, and it's being pursued, by the way, without any help from the pharmaceutical industry, which doesn't see a way to make money from this because yes. these drugs are, <laughs> there's no intellectual property to control, right? I mean, psilocybin grows all over the state um, and, uh, um, and LSD has been out of patent for a very long time. So uh, the phar- And the pharmaceutical industry wants drugs they can sell you every day, not something you take once. That's, there's no business model there. Um, but a lot of private contributions are supporting the work, which is exciting.
2: And I'll mention, just as a sidebar, uh, the, uh, the MAPS, which I mentioned earlier, the, the organization that studies psychedelics, uh, they are... At- phase three study with FDA, PTSD studies with MDMA. So that'll probably be the first one that's a treatment that's available and it's, all, it's had the same remarkable set of effects that you write yeah, this is
1: a, this is, I mean, some people call it a psychedelic, some people not. It's, uh, um, it's ecstasy or molly, and it, which was used as a drug in therapy until it became a club drug and then it was banned in 85. And they're using that to treat uh, people, veterans and, and victims of sexual abuse For trauma, and they're having—they're also getting remarkable results. Like two-thirds of the people treated have have shown significant reductions, and some they no longer qualify as having PTSD after. uh, In that case, three—I think three—experiences. So it's very exciting that we have these tools. Yet they're still shrouded in in uh, stigma, uh, a lot of which. You know, was established in the '60s, and um, that historical experience still colors, I think, how most of us uh, approach these drugs.
2: And I think it colors a cultural uh, anxiety and fear about them because, and and you talk about this quite a lot in the book about um, growing up during the moral panic of psychedelics, and and one of the reasons that you were just like, "I'll pass, thank you." Um, And I I want to talk about that a little bit because. I think one of the things that we know now is that a lot of the bad trips that were there. Well, I mean, if you think about the CIA and MK Ultra, it's like understandable why those are bad trips because they were creating right. them on purpose and dosing people without their knowledge and giving them extremely high doses, which would be terrifying.
1: The CIA had an idea when LSD was discovered uh, to weaponize it essentially and use it as it first as a truth serum, that didn't work very well. <laughs> I mean, anyone could have told them that. And then as uh, uh, something to you know, as a mind control agent. Um, which we don't know how well that worked. Um, it may have worked well, we don't know. Um, and, and then also as something to embarrass world leaders, you yeah. know, put it, their, put it in their coffee, and, and they would do silly things. Um, so yeah, and it was a horrible program because they did dose a lot of people without their peri- permission. Some people died. Um, and we still don't know the full extent of that research program. So that was, that was the shadow research program going on while all this research to help people was going on.
2: And successfully in achieving yeah. results. Well, I want to come back to this. So I wanted to mention the sort of the disinformation campaigns and, and, and also the real bad trips that people were having in the 60s, creating this environment where people were either really afraid of psychedelics and just shied away, or some people used them. And and as you said, once you use them, you kind of have an experience that's it's ineffable, it's difficult to talk about, and certainly hard to quantify or measure in any way. And so it becomes something that's personal or at least known a bunch of a, a, among a bunch of users, but I want to use that to talk about something you do in the book, which I think is so interesting. So you, you're curious, you're intrigued, you're watching these people have these results, you're hearing them talk about this, and you keep asking them, but was it an authentic experience? Yeah. <laughs> and, and then how can they say, they're like, I don't know, it was what I experienced, right? And so you're looking for a certitude almost. Yeah. And the place you went for that certitude, I thought, uh, in terms of thinking about consciousness and having a conscious experience was science. Yeah. And I want to talk about that choice a little bit because I think it's very interesting, as you pointed out a minute ago, that you have a, a molecule, right, that changes something and it's, it's, it's material intervention. You take this thing and it changes you. Um, but in the, in the therapy, it's really the talking through and working through what you saw that achieves results for people. It's the
1: psychological experience, yes. It's occasioned by a molecule, but the therapeutic agent is the kind of experience you have. Right. And that's, a, that's an unusual, that's hard to fit into our paradigms too. So in other words, some people take the drug and they have an interesting trip, but it's not uh, a mystical experience. Um, and that, that's kind of what the gold standard is, at least in the American research. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, we mean this experience um, that William James wrote about a lot, and he's kind of the grandfather of our understanding of that. But it's, another way to look at it that's a little less religious-sounding is that it's, it, it, it's a dissolution of ego. And when your ego dissolves, your, the barriers that the ego creates, the ego kind of patrols boundaries between subject and object, you and other people, you and nature, you and your subconscious feelings. That's, what, what's, that's the function of the ego, if we want to put it in more psychodynamic terms. Um, when, when those walls come down and the defenses come down, there's an experience of merging with some larger entity, which might be other people in this you know, wash of love, or it might be nature, or it might be the divine, or the universe. And that feeling is what is often called a mystical experience. And people have had it through other means, and some people have it spontaneously. I mean, the history of religious literature you know, contains many of these experiences. Um, and that, having that experience seems to be the best predictor of success. And that's interesting in itself, the idea that perhaps the ego stands in the way of healing, um, and because it's the ego that, that traps us in these stories we tell ourselves, uh, that, you know, I can't get through the next hour without a cigarette, uh, I'm unworthy of love. Um, uh, you know, we have these stories we tell ourselves, and they get in our way, and, and it is very often the ego who's enforcing those, um, those loops, those ruminative loops. Um, so anyway, it, so yeah, so we're essentially prescribing a certain kind of very powerful and transformative experience. I mean, people who have mystical experiences for other reasons, it's a conversion experience. They come out a different place than they went in. And these drugs can fairly reliably, in something like 67% of cases, 70% of cases, can occasion a mystical experience. And and of course, shrinks being shrinks, they have a measurement, you know, they have a scale that I filled out to see if I'd had one. It's <laughs> called the MEQ, the mystical experience questionnaire. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. But you know, they have to do this. They have to quantify everything. <laughs> but I did go to science because and and that was I, I was troubled by the fact that okay, these people were having speaking of the cancer patients, They were having experiences that acquainted them with another kind of plane of consciousness that they had never known before. And this plane of consciousness seemed transpersonal, to to go beyond the the confines of their own skull. It was somehow out there. And, um, And for some of them, that was very comforting, that there was some sort of consciousness, a larger consciousness, that they would be folded into after their death. And some of them had a very specific sense of an afterlife, or they, they saw something beyond that they could move toward or not at that point. And many of them chose to stay on this side. Others had a naturalistic understanding of that larger entity. This one woman described um, uh, entering into the soil and, and passing through the soil and being taken up by the plants. Now, that's not, you could argue that's mystical or that's what happens. <laughs> right? I mean... So, I, But I, would, like, I didn't know how, and I would ask the researchers, I say, well, are you concerned that you're just kind of fostering an illusion or a delusion in people who are dying? And, um, and I got a variety of answers. Um, one was, that's above my pay grade. We don't really know what happens. <laughs> sort of a cop-out, but okay. Um, another was, who cares? Who cares? I mean, that if this is so profoundly comforting that it makes it easier for people to die, Great. Uh, it's, uh, this is in their own head, right? They've come to this on their own. It isn't, it isn't contained in the molecule. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so I was, you know, that was something I chewed on, actually, for a long time, until I had my own experience, and then I, I kind of had a little more idea what they, were, uh, what they were seeing.
2: And even after, so you talk about different experiences throughout the book, which I won't ruin for you, because I think it's lovely the way it in- unfolds, but even when you get to a place of of some sort of pattern with this, you're like, okay, I think I know this experience somewhat now, right? It's not just a one-off, and... and (laughs) I'm not sure what that was a response to, Uh, um, the one-off. I thought it was so interesting that you wanted then to think about consciousness. Mm. So so then it was like, I want to understand what is happening to me. So, So most of the people, they have this conversion experience or this transcendental experience, or they come to know themselves and relinquish something that's been troubling them and then they feel blissed out and happy, but not you. (laughs) You had to go find the science, and you went to neuroscience, and you you really went down, I think, a really fascinating rabbit hole. So I I wonder if you would talk a little bit about what you discovered through consciousness. Well,
1: yeah, I mean, I was very curious to know what was happening in my brain. How is this working? What was going on? What do we know about it? And so I I did kind of a deep dive into the neuroscience, and I found some researchers in England uh, who were doing really incredible work, and um, the, I think one of the most telling things they found is that they, um, they, they started doing brain imaging, fMRI and, and another um, technique, of people's brains during the psychedelic experience. They would actually inject someone with psilocybin and then slide them into that MRI machine. God. I, I can't imagine it. <laughs> Those volunteers should be thanked. <laughs> um, and they, they, what they expected to see was uh, lots of, you know, increase in brain activity that would correlate with the fireworks that people experience and report. You know, hallucinations, anesthesia, all these kind of things that happen. And hearing voices. And, um, but they found something very different, which was that um, one particular brain network called the default mode network, and I'll tell you a little bit about it in a second, was um, down-regulated. Um, was activity went down. Uh, and, and that was kind of... Um, a surprise. Now what does the default mode network do? Well, it's, uh, it's, it, it's several, it has several different nodes, it's, uh, it, it, several of which are in the cortex, which is the evolutionarily most recent uh, part of your brain, but they also link to the um, to deeper, older uh, centers of emotion and memory. And it's a hub in the brain. Lots of traffic passes through the default mode network. But we know it's specifically involved in a couple functions, most having to do with generating our sense of self. Um, So self-reflection and rumination takes place here, worry, mind-wandering takes place here. Um, uh, Theory of mind, the ability to impute a mental state to another. Um, Time travel, the ability to think about the, the past or the future. And something called the experiential or autobiographical self seems to be generated here. That's that's the very critical brain activity of uh, or mind activity of taking information in, things happen to you, um, and and connecting it to the story you tell about who you are, and it's it's how you develop that. I mean, which is you know based on your past, and that's why time travel is very important to this, and your future objectives, um, and. Uh, so these stories we tell to give ourselves a sense of a consistent self over time, all takes place here. And it's no wonder then that when, peop- when, the, when the scientists observed the sharpest drop in activity in the default mode network was when people reported and when they asked them what's going on, they would say, I have no sense of self, I've lost my sense of self completely. Um, this part of the brain is also, uh, you know, so if the ego has an address, it's the default mode network. <laughs> and the fact that we now can turn it off pretty reliably with a drug is pretty astonishing. By the way, it, the same thing happens in very experienced meditators. If you mm-hmm. image their brains and get them to, these are people with 10,000 hours of meditation. Um, if, you, if you put them in an fMRI machine and they um, meditate for you, their brains look very similar. And of course, they're transcending self, too. Um, and one, as, one, as one therapist called this in the 50s, this is, um, he called it therapy by self-transcendence. Yeah. Um, and it suggests that we get in our own way, um, our egos get in our own way, and that those stories that we tell ourselves about who we are and get stuck with sometimes need to be um, suspended for a period of time. And, and, and we, you get a break from them, and that shows you that there might be another way to, to approach life.
2: Absolutely. And I think one of the interesting things about thinking about this for me is that this is not new. There are cultures that have used sacrament and ritual and done similar things. And if it's part of your culture, you might be less likely to have that ego get in your way along the way if this is a part of the way of thinking that that you do as a culture. Um so, I wanna... but you could also
1: argue that the ego is more pronounced in our culture than some other cultures, right? I, would I mean, we never is... bet against you. yeah <laughs> but... <laughs> and that we do we we erect walls, we yeah. um, uh, we objectify the other, whether it's it's other humans in in uh, our tribalism, or we uh, objectify nature in a way that you know we don't we don't give it the same credit for being a subject for having any kind of agency, Um, so therefore we can do whatever we want with it. And so, I mean, I think this is a a particularly Western ailment that these drugs appear to address.
2: And the privileging of the self that happens in our culture, or the sort of self-orientation or self-obsession, whatever you want to call it, uh, really is mitigated against by the psychedelic experience, which is is something I want to ask you about. So in your experiences, um, what happened to the self?
1: Well, I had several different experiences. I, I, uh, guide, I had an unguided experience with psilocybin, then I had guided experience with LSD, high-dose psilocybin, uh, ayahuasca on a couple of occasions, uh, which is an Amazonian tea made from two plants. It contains a DMT, which is a powerful psychedelic, and a really weird one called 5-MeO-DMT, which is a, uh, the smoked venom of the Sonoran Desert toad
2: He went there, no joke, (laughs) all the way.
1: But, you know, a fellow human figured this out, right? That's pretty amazing. You know, we always talk about it, who's the first person who eat an oyster or a lobster? Who's the first first person who figured out this toad venom? I've got to smoke it. (laughs) That was not a good trip. Um, So, but if we want to talk about ego dissolution, uh, I, the, it was this guided psilocybin trip, um, which was, uh, I think, the most profound for me. I was working with a woman who was wonderful, and I really had a sense of trust, even though she was very kind of woo-woo new-agey for me. Um, there was just something about her. She was really, you know, I mean, you know when you're choosing therapists, whatever their system is, finally doesn't matter. It's like the bond, right? And And I had this with her. And I wanted to mimic the kind of dose being used in these above-ground trials. I was so I was working with an underground therapists. There is a there is a thriving uh, community of these people. I learned uh, in many parts of the country, and um, they are therapists. Many of them. Um, many of them. Some of them are M.D.s. Uh, some of them are Ph.D.s. You know, uh, psychologists who are working with these drugs because they think that they're very powerful healing agents and they're not deterred by the fact that it's illegal. Um, I found them to be, most of them, there was a couple I met that I would not entrust my mind to. Um, uh, Very mystical people. Um, But they, you know, they're, they're very professional. They have a code of conduct. Uh, they um, have you fill out lots of questionnaires, the way a doctor would. They're, they're actually even more careful than a lot of doctors, as one of them told me, we don't have very good insurance. So <laughs> we're very careful. And they screen people very carefully. Um, and anyway, so Mary, uh, as I call her in the book, um, uh, I did this guided psilocybin journey. and. Um, it had many chapters and, and not all of them were pleasant. Uh, initially, when uh, we started, she started playing this piece of music by a guy named Thierry David, uh, who I didn't know. It's a new age composer. Thrice nominated in the category of best chill groove album. Um, <laughs> and it was horrible, the kind of music you might hear during a massage. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it was electronica and it's some in this computer world. And I was, I was deep in this it was like a video game. Everything was generated. The music, I mean, synesthesia, you know, music generates space. You start seeing notes. And the world I was seeing was kind of dark and really, it wasn't scary, but it was just, I wanted to be outside, you know. I wanted, to, I wanted better imagery. And I got stuck there for a very long time. And I could tell you why later. I figured out why I was in computer land. Um, and um, at a certain point, I was starting to get some anxiety, and I had this I felt this tide rising of, like, I'm stuck in computer world, how can I get out? And so I decided to stop, and, uh, oh, oh, I didn't tell you this. When, during the guided trip, you're wearing eye shades, okay, and you're listening to music. And the eye shades are designed to make you go inside, and not just kind of groove on, you know, the imagery that's out there. And, and it's very important if you're going to have a therapeutic trip. But as soon as you take off the eye shades... It sort of breaks the spell, and you can. And I did because I just really wanted to make sure reality was still existing. And I had this moment of ah, walls, <laughs> windows, <laughs> plants, um, and I uh, and I also had to pee. And she took me to the. She walked me to the bathroom across this loft, and uh, I was very careful not to look in the mirror. I was. I didn't know what I would see. Um, and as I said in the book, I produced this spectacular crop of diamonds. Um, <laughs> she said I was honest um, <laughs> and, and then I went back and I was going to um, uh, resume and, and Mary said would you like a booster would you like some more and I said yes because I decided to go wherever uh, she took me and I had this she was kneeling next to me I was on this futon and, um, and she's normally um, uh, blonde and she was like I don't know, my age or a little bit younger, and, um, and I looked at her, and, she, and she's kneeling, and she's holding out in her hands this mushroom for me to take, and she had turned into a Mexican Indian, um, specifically someone named Maria Sabina, who was a legendary person in the world of psilocybin, because she was a Mazatec Indian who gave the first Westerner, a, a New York banker named R. Gordon Wasson, the first... Psilocybin trip that any Westerner had had in 1955, and I'd studied that whole episode, and and she is this legendary figure, and there she was, and she had this kind of leathery skin over these high cheekbones and this black hair part in the middle, and she's wearing a white peasant dress, and her hand is just you know really old, and and there's this mushroom, and I was like, I didn't think I should tell Mary what happened to her, <laughs> um, and then I went back under, and and that's when it got really interesting, and. Um, uh, For a while I'm experiencing this place as my usual self, with my usual attitudes, I hate the music, Um, and I have my usual eye, my perspective, and then suddenly, and then all at once I felt my sense of self fall apart, and and, and it was just kind of exploded into this sheaf of little papers like post-its, but I was fine with it. Now, what's this other eye that was fine with it? I don't know. I mean, it, it, there, was a, there was a kind of split in my consciousness between myself, which I could see, and this other perceiving consciousness. I know how crazy this sounds. Um, and then I looked out. And so I had no desire to pile the, the slips of paper back together and, and, and reassemble myself. I didn't fight it because I'd been instructed not to. But you could see why you might want to try to do that and why that would make you crazy. Um, And then I looked out again and I saw myself uh, spread over the landscape like a coat of paint. And again, the perspective from which I was observing this was so disinterested, so calm and unburdened. It was just fine. And I think it was that consciousness that didn't feel like mine. It felt like more universal, but I had access to it is the consciousness that a lot of the people who were dying felt and had access to. And that it's a consciousness in which whatever happens is meant to happen. You know, it's very fatalistic, um, very resigned, but not in a sad way. It had very very little emotional tone to it. Anyway, it was um, uh, to have your ego dissolve like that. I'd never had an experience like that. I'd never had a spiritual experience. Um, and I think this was a kind of spiritual experience. Um, and then it went on and, and there was, um, I was still together enough to argue with her about the music <laughs> and um, <laughs> I don't know which I did that but um, uh, and I, we finally agreed to put on a piece of music by Bach, the, uh, one of the unaccompanied cello suites uh, played by Yo-Yo Ma, the one, it's number two in D minor. It's a spectacular piece of music. You probably heard it at funerals, that's where it's often played. And I had the most profound experience of music I'd ever had. I I, um, I just merged with the notes. I merged with the the strings. I could feel the horsehair of the bow just passing through me, and and went into the well of space in the in the cello itself, and um, and was completely at one with it. Um, it wasn't music. It was something closer to the meaning of life. I mean, it was a very powerful experience. And hard to describe, obviously. And I worked very hard to describe it in the book. And I, and I hope I succeeded, but it's, it's not easy because another mark of the mystical experience is that it's ineffable. Um, and, uh, and this certainly is. Um, but it was very powerful. And so I, then in my integration, I tried to make sense of this. And I told Mary what had happened. And I said I'd had this experience of another way to be that wasn't, I mean, I'd always, like most of us, I identified with my ego. That was me, right? That, that voice in your head chattering and telling you what to do. And, and the ego is great, you know, the ego is very important. It got this book written. Um, <laughs> got a lot of us here tonight. Um, but um, I was free of it for a period of time. And I realized there, it's not the only perspective on my life or on life. And I spe- But I said to Mary, I said, but look, my ego is back in uniform and on patrol again. Um, so what <laughs> was gained? And she said, well, you've had a taste of another way to react or not react, less defensively, less self-interestedly, and that you can cultivate that, um, having seen what it was like. And I asked her how, and she said, well, meditate. Um, meditation is a very good way to connect with that kind of consciousness, because it is very similar to the consciousness that you, when you succeed, and I know you're not supposed to use that word talking about meditation, um, but when you reach that uh, point of quieting your mind, there is the sense, and entering the present moment, th- there is a sense that the self disappears. And of course, the self can only exist in a continuum of past and future. So if you can really enter the present, the self goes away, and um, it's It's liberating. Um, so, I don't mean to knock the ego, I mean, you know, it's good for certain things, um, but it also does get in our way. So, yeah. that was the, I think that was the most kind of, the experience that was most transformative for me. And, you know, I could have gotten that insight about the ego from 10 or 20 years of psychotherapy, perhaps. That's one of the things you work on, right, in psychotherapy. But I got it in an afternoon. It's kind of amazing. So...
2: It is amazing, and, and, and so I think one of the things that was really uh, compelling for me about the book is so I uh, used psychedelics as I came of age, so they're very much a part of my sense of self, so I can't imagine what it would be like at midlife to say, now I'm gonna try this thing that I'm a little nervous about, and, and then to have that radical experience at that point in life, it yeah. seems. And it's one of the things that you talk about, which I think is really important to understand, is so much of that under self-understanding or that new perspective or that differentiated sense of self lasts. Yeah. You know, it, 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 it might quiet down a little bit, and you might need to no there is, a, there it is, a, there is
1: part of the experience that has a residue um, Part of it is though you, you keep going back to it and you remember it um, and, you, and so there's some new mental connection that you 're exercising yeah. by remembering it and I had images like that that I, I, I replay in my head, and they become stronger and stronger that 's what learning is right. Um, yeah, I, well, when you do it in life, I, 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 there's a line in the book that's sort of a throwaway, but I, I really mean it, that psychedelics are wasted on the young. Uh, they may be. because hey. when <laughs> 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 um, I know it's a little harsh, but <laughs> I don't know the value of ego dissolution when you're 16, when your ego is still forming. Um, there are other things that happen in that experience, and I, and I really do think... Let me put it this way there's a different kind of psychedelic experience when you're in your 50s or 60s than there is when you're a teenager. And I wish I, and I, I hope you'll experiment because you can help us understand the difference because many people either had those early experiences or these later experiences, but few people do both. Which yeah. is
2: interesting. Some of us continue all the way along. And yeah, there is that. It, I, what, but I mentioned this because I think. But I, I mean, I need a
1: comparative perspective <laughs> on
2: this. Yeah, we'll have to do a study. Uh, I, I think the interesting thing about it for me was it seemed like there's a lot to overcome if you haven't done it yet. That yes. seemed. to Oh, the fear! To me.
1: I was. I, I had sleepless nights yeah. every time I had a sleepless night before I did this, where I was like,
0: Thanks "One for half of me was saying, 'Are you you going to go up w- on the mountain with this guy you barely know.'" Yeah. Michael Pollan is the if, author of. You know, he doesn't even have a Wi Fi connection. What the mm-hmm. new and science of psychedelics teaches us. And, like, about what if you have a heart attack? Dying, is he going to call 911? You know, and risk his own
1: freedom? It. On his That's recent crazy. Seattle visit he you know, spoke with Ingrid K Walker you have a, Walker, you have <laughs> a, a child you know um, at the and then the other half is like Tacoma. but aren't you curious you have never had a spiritual experience here is an opportunity and you and, um, and you've got a book to write and you this need to see this conversation took place and, on the um, 22nd at Seattle and finally Seattle every University time when i finally Sunday. passed the point of no Hall, return Seattle and the blood paper on my tongue or whatever was i was able to surrender and i realized later that that was my event on
3: our website you trying to get, to get me not to do this. Speakers for My ego knew full well that the assault by subscribing <laughs> that I was about podcasts. to mount
1: on him. We do appreciate your life. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and of course, our egos Tune command our most you. rational faculties. So they have really good arguments. But sometimes they need to be ignored.
2: Absolutely. I think we're at time. We're going to take some questions. But I have one more question for you as, as, as we're doing. Come on up, and, and this will be short. What's the one thing you wish people who haven't taken psychedelics could know?
1: Oh, well. It's different than I thought it was, I mean the experience, I'm, I'm, I'm describing the most kind of extreme point in the experience, but, but hours of the experience are less dramatic, and they're really meditative, and you enter this very interesting cognitive space, this is usually the denouement as the experience is, is very, um, uh, you know, is beginning to end. Where you just enter this very interesting cognitive space where you can choose to think about what you want to think about. And you can kind of do a work, a psychological work. And like, I'm going to think about my father now. And, and he'll be very present to you and you can think about him in this incredibly focused, undistracted way. And I think that's a dimension of the psychedelic experience that doesn't get enough attention. Um, and the other thing I would say is uh, the, you know these are powerful drugs and they can be used in a reckless way. And that you have to pay a lot of attention to set and setting. And if you're at risk for serious psychological problems, things like schizophrenia, they're really not a good idea. Um, and that being with a guide makes all the difference, um, especially as you get older. I, I, I think that we have more at stake as we get older, um, yet we have more to gain, too, because we're, locked, we're stuck, all of us. It's not just people who have cancer diagnoses or have addictions. We all have addictive behavior, and we all have habits of thought, destructive habits of thought, that we'd like to um, give up. And these drugs are very good for d- doing that kind of reset that doesn't happen late in life very often. So I, I think that's that great. that's a, a beautiful metaphor. I'm just going to just very quickly do this, that uh, one of the English researchers, actually he's Dutch, uh, one of the scientists said, I was asking him, like, so what do you think is going on in the mind when? when when this happens. How do people break habits? And he said, well, think of the mind as a a hill covered in snow, and your thoughts are sleds going down. He's Dutch, so it would have been skis (laughs) anywhere else, Um, but they don't have mountains. Um, and, uh, And your thoughts are sleds going down the hill, and the more thoughts you have over time, the deeper the grooves that are formed in the snow. And after a while, it's very hard for the sled to go down without getting stuck in a groove, and what the what the psychedelics do is flatten the snow so that you can so that when you're sledding down you can take a new path or many new paths. And I thought that was a beautiful beautiful metaphor. Absolutely.
3: So before questions, let's give a round of applause. <laughs> Thank you so much Ingrid Walker, Michael Pollan. So we had a lot of fantastic questions tonight, so we're gonna try and get through as many as possible. We have about 15 minutes. Uh, but I really appreciate yeah, I really appreciate this one that we got that I think is a good one to start with. Um, when talking about psychedelics on such a large scale to such a large audience, I think both in this room and in the media tour for this book, uh, what do we as participants do to uphold and respect the cultures they come from? These obviously have religious and cultural significance yeah. for lots of people, so your
1: thoughts on that would be welcome. Yeah, I, I think that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, I think what we need to do, these drugs, when they, when they burst upon the West, we didn't know what they were, we didn't know what they did, and uh, there was no context for them. They were just drugs. and um, uh, And we should have paid more attention to the way they were used in traditional cultures. And if you look at any traditional culture um, that uses a psychedelic, it's always in a, a, a carefully regulated manner. There's always a ceremony. There's always ritual. There's always an elder, someone who really knows the territory. And you don't take the drugs outside of that context, they have a container, a cultural container. And I think that's really important, and I think it was our, our failure to see that, especially with psilocybin, where you know, it had come out of um, this uh, indigenous American tradition that we should have really studied how they used them, and we didn't. We didn't understand that they were sacraments, and we didn't treat them like sacraments. LSD, obviously, there was less of a model because it was new. There's a whole history, you know, the ancient Greeks had, it, had their own psychedelic and, and, and they only used it once a year at a very special ceremony and anyone who used it any other time of the year would be brutally punished. Um, so there was this sense of respect. Um, and I think that uh, it was to our loss that we didn't study those models and we still need to study those models. I mean, th- that's what's interesting, ayahuasca is traveling with its ceremony. Into it 's usually given by shamans or people who trained with shamans, um, and that the whole tradition comes with it. Is there cultural appropriation in this? yeah, um, there is um, you know or you could call it be more generous and call it cultural translation, um, but it is happening great question,
3: yeah, thank
1: you for the person
3: who wrote that. Um, Many of these questions used the words ineffable and effable. I saw a lot of great different spellings of those words (laughs) (laughs) when sorting through. Um, But uh, a lot of them boil down to trying to ask you as a writer in your writing process how you translated these ineffable experiences. So as a writer, your job is to basically make things effable. Did the ineffability of your trips prove particularly frustrating
1: in the reintegration periods? Well, I was really uh, nervous about approaching these chapters where I talked about my own experiences because I, I knew that they were very weird and hard to, um, hard to describe. And, um, uh, and when I got to that point, um, I struggled for a while to find the right voice. And I'd read a lot of trip reports online, and they're not very good. And you know, <laughs> if people tell you their dreams, it's like... <sighs> <sighs> And they're a little like dreams. Um, so, I, so there were a lot of pitfalls. And I had a couple models, Aldous Huxley, Doors of Perception is beautifully rendered, although I think a little neat, um, a little neater than I bet the experience was. Um, so what I found worked for me. I, I teach a course on memoir writing. And one of the things I've noticed reading lots of memoir is that the most interesting ones have two voices in them, not one. There's the voice of, say, the child of 10. And then there's the voice of the adult of 30. Um, and it's the interplay in the reminiscence and, and, and switching perspectives back and forth that really gives this, the, the, the energy to a piece of writing like that. And, I, and I, it occurred to me that something similar had to happen here. I had to write about the experience from inside, even though years had not elapsed. I had to write about the experience inside as it unfolded in my mind, as crazy as it sounds, when I'm merging with you know, a horsehair cello bow, um, and and yet also keep stepping outside and say in saying I know how crazy this sounds, and when I got to things that were truly ineffable like the toad trip, which the toad trip was terrifying because not only was self obliterated, everything was obliterated. There was no self, there was no space, there was no time. It was like pure energy. And think about how do you construct a narrative without character, time, and space. These are the three <laughs> crucial ingredients, and I didn't have them, and and so what I did there was I was very honest with the reader. I talked to the reader, and I say, look, this was a incomprehensible, incoherent experience. I'm going to give you a couple metaphors. None of them are right exactly. Um, one of them is um, being in the middle of a thermonuclear explosion, <laughs> and being one of those houses that they erected on the Bikini Atoll to blow up and, you know, yes. and that's how it felt. But not really, it was sort of how it felt. And then another metaphor, it was like, remember before the Big Bang? Of course you don't. <laughs> but let us try. Um, a time before there was matter, when there was only energy, that's sort of what it was like. So it's, it, it was a kind of like not trying to tie it up in a neat bow. So you'll decide if I succeeded, but it was was a fascinating literary exercise, and for me, as someone who is a journalist, writing in that tight box of fact, here I was in this whole other realm, and it was actually quite liberating. So in the end, I had a great time writing these scenes, Um, uh, but you decide. (laughs) Okay. I've really appreciated following
3: your interest in the microbiome, and I'm wondering, is there a connection between the (laughs) gut and the brain? And if so, what are your recommendations for dietary supplements to accompany changing
1: your mind? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Let
1: me see if I can reset. (laughs) So yes, there are a lot of very interesting connections between the microbiome and the brain. And I think we're going to find that mood, depression has uh, not necessarily an origin or etiology in the gut, but, but is connected. One of the curiosities is that serotonin, the, 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 the brain receptor that, by the way, LSD helped us to discover, um, because it works on the same receptor networks, um, is produced in quantity in the gut. And, and there are lots of receptors in the gut. And we don't really understand what that's about, um, but that there have been some interesting experiments um, using certain... Uh, kinds of food, and, and working on the health of the microbiome, and looking at the microbiome of depressed people and people with mental illness, and they do see connections. It's, I almost wrote a book on the microbiome because it's really fascinating, and, they're, and we're learning so much, but it's all such early stages that I, I, there was nothing I could write that wouldn't be dated in five years, so I think it's too soon to say, but I think we will discover that um, mental health and gut health are intimately connected.
3: Uh, since you mentioned uh, serotonin there, there were a few questions about the brain chemistry of serotonin, uh, and one in particular I thought was worth asking. Is there any science on taking psilocybin if you are on SSRIs? Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. It doesn't work very well. Um, they find that people have kind of a dud trip. Nothing happens. And the reason is that the SSRI is probably occupying the same receptor, so it, it, it's blocked, and, it, and, and the... LSD or psilocybin can't get in. So generally, they, they want you to taper. If you're, if you're doing this for depression, uh, they have you taper off of SSRIs, which is itself risky. Um, but they feel that you should not be taking SSRIs. It's not that it's bad for you. Um, uh, they haven't found that. But they have found that it, it seems to block the action of the, of the psychedelics. This
3: is a personal question, or when I was a teenager, there was some folk wisdom that if you took an SSRI af- the day after you took a psychedelic drug, that that would like, help re- heal your brain from the experience. I think
1: that was uh, an, an MDMA idea, because uh, uh, there was a belief that MDMA, which works differently in the brain and, and is more toxic to the body, um, uh, that it depletes serotonin, and therefore if you replace it, um, I have no idea if, that, if yeah. there's any truth to that.
3: And keeping on this, some of those brain chemistry questions, there were several questions about fears about dependency on yeah. psilocybin and LSD. Yeah,
1: that's good. We didn't talk about risk that much, and, and I, I should touch on this. Because, you know, as you know, I was a nervous Nelly about this, so I did a lot of research to find out if this was a dangerous thing to do or not. And um, uh, I was surprised by what I found. In the case of the classic psychedelics, LSD, psilocybin, DMT, ayahuasca, uh, and mescaline, um, they're remarkably well I should say they're relatively non-toxic, there are many drugs that you buy over the counter and perhaps take every day that are much more toxic to the body um, and that they are um, uh, very few molecules and they're washed out very quickly uh, and it only affects your, your brain it doesn't affect you know other systems um, and there's no lethal dose um, and there's a lethal dose for all sorts of you know, drugs you have in your medicine cabinet, you know whether it's Tylenol or, um, uh, so that's kind of remarkable. Um, And they're non-addictive. If you, uh, when you finish one of these trips, your first thought is, where can I get some more? No. (laughs) It's like, do I ever have to do this again? Um, It's just too intense. Yeah. And indeed, if you, if you um, do one of those experiments with the rat that can self-administer cocaine with a lever, and it's got a lever for lunch, lever for cocaine, and it ignores the lunch lever and hits this one until it dies, um, you put LSD in that setup once, <laughs> never again. <laughs> so I think they're anti-addictive, if anything. Um, yeah. The risks are psychological. And there are psychological risks. It's a a powerful experience, and to some people that can be destabilizing. And people at at risk for schizophrenia have on occasion had the psychotic break that began uh, a lifetime of dealing with schizophrenia. Would that have happened anyway? Most people say yes, probably, but it's some trauma that will kick that off. People do have panic attacks. People do end up occasionally in an emergency room, or much less for this drug than any other drug. Um, so the risk profile is not bad, but I but I don't want to suggest that problems don't happen. I, you know, I was speaking at um, Google this afternoon, and someone came up after me after I just said what I said to you, and he said, you know, my nephew was 20 and he took LSD and he had a seizure and died. Now there was no autopsy; we don't know exactly what happened. We don't know what other, you know, what else was going on, and. Bad things do happen to people who take all sorts of different kinds of drugs. But when it happens with psychedelics, I think, it takes on this, this, uh, this mythical force uh, because these drugs are so scary. Can so, um, uh, you know, I think that you want to be a fairly sturdy person um, to, to uh, risk your ego. I mean, and, you know, some of the guides will say you need a pretty strong ego to be willing to let it go and have it snap back. Um, and I, I can sort of see the point of that.
2: Can I add one thing to that? Absolutely. I just want to say uh, psychedelics are not drugs of abuse. It's, it's the only category of drug that people don't abuse them because you, don't, you can't just do them all the time. And in fact, they're diminishing returns if you do them That's regularly. Right. So there's no motivation to do that thing.
1: And the reason when people microdose, um, I'm sure you have a microdosing question. <laughs> yeah? Yeah, there's always a microdosing question. Um, uh, they don't take it every day. This is when you take a very low dose of LSD, uh, like a tenth of a normal dose. Um, as a kind of brain tonic. Um, and there are many people doing this in Silicon Valley. I'm sure there are people doing it in this room. Um, uh, there's very little science to support it yet, um, but, it's, uh, but they, they only take it every third or fourth day because if you took it every day, it wouldn't work. Uh, it does have this point of diminishing returns. It's a good point. We had
3: almost exactly that question about
1: microdosing. <laughs> yeah. And if you want to know more about microdosing, which I only touch on briefly in the book, at Waldman last yeah. year published a really interesting book about it called A Really Good Day, and I, I recommend that for getting the whole story on microdosing. There is research about to get started, so we'll know more on whether it works, um, but right now it's purely anecdotal, and I, I really tried to hew close to the science in this book.
3: Yeah. So there were several questions also about the medical communities. Taboo or lack of taboo about adopting this research. Do you think that the medical community, as it is now, will ever be open to the use of psychedelic drugs to treat mental health issues? And I'll add one other question onto that, which is more specific. Uh, if you could tell us about the efficacy of
1: trials for alcoholism and the treatment of alcoholism. Yeah. yeah. So, medical okay. community in general so and alcoholism. You know, when I wrote this first piece for The New Yorker, um, about a week before it was going to come out, my editor called and said, Look, uh, there's some people getting nervous about this piece. Um, will you go find someone who thinks this is all bullshit? And okay, you know, was, I had one day to like dial people, finding prominent people in the, in the medical community to tell me that this was ridiculous research, it shouldn't be done, whatever. Um, I figured I'd start at the top with the head of the National Institute of Mental Health, a man named Tom Insel at the time, psychiatrist, as establishment, a position you could have in, in the world of psychiatry, and I thought he'd give me this very skeptical quote. And he said, no, I think this research is fascinating. And I really think we need to do it. And uh, and he said, you know, you don't understand. The mental health care is broken and we need new tools. Just what I was telling you earlier. And I kept calling people and I kept running into this. They said, well, you know, the research hasn't completed yet. We haven't, and it's really true. You know, we've only gotten to sort of phase one and pilot studies. And there are bigger trials that have to happen before we can say this is a medicine. Um, but most of the people I've talked to, and this includes heads of the American Psychiatric Association, and um, feel that um, we've got to take a look at this. Um, so I don't, I don't get that kind of resistance. Um, I'm looking for it. The, the, the one person who's been kind of putting out some blog posts, a guy named uh, Jeffrey Lieberman at, at Columbia, prominent uh, former head, I think, of the American Psychiatric Association, and he's like, let's not get ahead of ourselves. We've got to do the research. That's the, the most serious criticism I've heard. Um, and, and I agree with it, by the way, and we do have to do the research. Um, and, and, you, know. and
2: you mention in the book why that is, why, why people are hesitant about, not just for the scientific, let's find out what the, what the answer is, but because the exuberant, uh, the overexuberance yeah. early on killed this. In, yes, in, in I mean,
1: Timothy Leary, you know, we didn't really talk about the 60s history, but <laughs> Timothy Leary was a very serious personality psychologist and he got to Harvard and just had a big trip in Mexico and decided on psilocybin that he was going to study this. And uh, he started out doing science, but he, but he, as sometimes happens to people, he got really impatient with science because he realized, wow, we have to treat the whole society, mm-hmm. um, not just the individual. Now, we don't have a model for treating a whole society with a drug, except for fluoride, actually. Um, <laughs> but we're not going to put LSD in the water, okay? That was a CIA idea. Um, so... Um, It's really important that everybody stay, you know, and go through the process. And we're on that path of drug approval. And it could happen in five years or so. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's the only way we can have that kind of uh, certainty. How are these findings received in the recovery community? Have you had any
3: conversations um, with folks there?
1: Oh, Well, going back to that question about alcoholism. So, so far there's been, in the 50s, there was a lot of treatment of alcoholism. And there was a meta-analysis done. The the studies then, you have to understand, all the 50s and early 60s studies are not up to modern standard. The whole idea of the uh, randomized, placebo-controlled drug trial really doesn't start in America until 1962 after the thalidomide scandal. That was a a drug we were giving to pregnant women that turned out to uh, create birth defects. And then that's when we moved to this new system. So before that, it was kind of a little sloppy and uh, by modern standards. But the, alcohol, the best alcoholism um, uh, studies found that it really helped with alcohol dependence, reducing people's alcohol dependence. And that, then there was a pilot study done at the University of New Mexico a couple years ago that also got um, very promising results, promising enough to start a very big trial that's underway at NYU. So we'll know more. But one of the interesting angles on the alcoholism story is that, um, that I talk about in the book is that um, AA, um, which we think of as... Uh, spiritual in some ways and very anti-drugs of all kind, actually was started by, co- co-founded by Bill W., Bill Wilson and he got sober on a psychedelic experience himself uh, a drug that's sometimes called a psychedelic or delirium deliriant called Belladonna a, a plant drug, was given it to him in a hospital in New York and he had the kind of mystical experience that allowed him to get sober. In the 50s he started um, getting treated with LSD in Los Angeles and realized that this could really help alcoholics, that it kind of simulated the DTs and the kind of conversion experience um, and gave people a sense of a higher power, which is, a, you know, I always thought that idea of a higher power was kind of a dilute Christianity of AA, um, but no, it's a residue of psychedelic experience, um, which I think is really interesting. So so Bill W. in the 50s um, went to the board of AA and said, I think that this may have a role to play in helping people get sober. And the board was like, don't mess with our brand. Um, <laughs> and I understand that. I mean, that's, that's a you know to, to, to deal with a drug addiction with another drug that has a stigma attached was, was hard for people to get their heads around. So we'll know more in a couple of years on how effective it is. It's also been very effective in a small pilot study with um, people trying to quit smoking. Uh, and that's a very tough addiction to break.
3: is modern high-strength marijuana a psychedelic can it be used for therapy in ways similar to the other
1: drugs you discussed honestly I don't know um some people say that and and certainly marijuana can seem you know phenomenologically somewhat something some somewhat like psychedelics but it works on a whole different receptor network uh the cannabinoid network um and um Uh, So I don't, I wouldn't call it a psychedelic. Some people, MAPS uses that word in a very broad way to include MDMA and everything Rick Doblin likes um, (laughs) is a psychedelic. Um, And I have enormous respect for him. He's the head of MAPS and he's done amazing work uh, charting this course to, to approval. Um, but I would not, I would not call it a psychedelic. And whether it w- could be used in the same uh, to treat people, I mean, it does have. We know, we're learning it. It is valuable as a medicine. The only thing I would say, though, that we is we approved medical marijuana in this country on a fraction of the research we have about psychedelics. Most of the research on marijuana was was pretty anecdotal um, when we decided to, uh, you know, let it become a medicine. And the reason for that was it's actually harder in this country to study marijuana Mm -hmm. uh, than it is psychedelics um, for a whole lot of reasons.
3: There was another question about ketamine.
1: Yeah. Any comments on that? Ketamine is a uh, dissociative, Mm -hmm. right? It's it's an anesthetic um, that at certain doses... induces uh, a a psychedelic experience or experience very much like psychedelics. I didn't explore it, but it's already a legal drug, and it is being used to treat depression uh, with some success. There's a lot of excitement about it in the psychiatric community. It doesn't last that long and needs to be repeated, um, but it is a legal drug, and we have a lot of experience. It's been used in anesthesia for a long time. Um, uh, Some people don't find the experience that pleasant, But it does seem to give the kind of jolt to the mental system that that can help some people with depression. So there's an article, a very good article in Wired Magazine this month about Mm it. Um, But I I didn't get into it because I also don't think of it as a classic psychedelic.
3: We have time only for a couple more questions, but I, I wanted to say there are a lot of questions in here that begin, how do I find? Um, and, and not just find drugs, but also find community and further opportunities to engage with these questions. And I highly recommend folks check out the Seattle Psychedelic Society table on your way out as a way to learn more if you're, if you're curious. I'm not going to pose any, and s- also, any of those uh, very I also ones.
1: posted, a, yeah. because I'm getting this question a lot, and I can't be in the business of referring people, obviously. <laughs> that's, not, that's not smart for anyone. Um, uh, but I, I put a lot of resources on my website, michaelpollen.com, and there's a whole set of resources that, that can connect you to psychedelic societies, that connect, can connect you to communities of interest where you might begin to find your way uh, into this if you spend a little time with it. So I, I urge you to check that out.
3: All right, so the last couple of questions, this one I really loved, came uh, near the end from a saxophonist who's an improviser in the room and has a question about psychedelics and creativity, which is Ah, something that I feel like people commonly talk about, psychedelics in the context of artists. Did you feel creativity enhanced as a writer, and did you talk to folks who are artists who use psychedelics?
1: Yeah, I mean, creativity is, is, is a very elusive concept. Um, we, don't, we don't really have a good definition of it. So, therefore, it becomes very hard to study. In the 60s, there were a couple studies of creativity using LSD. And uh, I, I described this. Uh, Jim Fadiman, who's still around, is a, uh, uh, was a psych- Stanford-trained psychologist who wanted to study creativity and LSD. And he would get people in a room who were stuck on a problem. He'd have an architect, an engineer, uh, an artist, a writer, and he'd give them 100 micrograms of LSD, and they'd, like, you know... Lie on the floor, you know, gazing at the ceiling for a while. Then he'd say, okay, time to go to your desks. And they would get up and go to their desks and work on their problem. Um, and, they all, and not all of them, but most of them reported significant breakthroughs. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the people who were treated there uh, subsequently became very important creative forces. I'm thinking of uh, Doug Engelbart, who is very important in the history of computers. This is a man who uh, is responsible for the, the uh, user interface, the uh, email, um, uh, video conferencing, um, what else? Um, the mouse, the computer mouse. And he invented something on during his psychedelic trip. It wasn't anything as good as those. those. Those came a few years later. He invented something that he called a tinkle toy, which was something to help toilet train boys. Um, that it was something that they could use their stream of urine to make a pinwheel go around. And um, I'm sure they're more important creative achievements. (laughs) And Stuart Brand also participated in these, uh, the Whole Earth Catalog guy. And in fact, it was on uh, uh, an LSD trip on a rooftop which you should never do, don't go up on the <laughs> roof if you're taking LSD, um, and he, he was, this is 1966, and he, and he was observing the curvature of the Earth, which I'm sure was exaggerated in his state, <laughs> and he realized it would change everything if we had an image of the Earth taken from space. Because if you think of the Earth as flat, as most of us did, even though we knew better, it seems eternal, endless, and therefore you can't use it up, right? infinite, you know, manifest destiny, there's always more. But if you thought, if you realized that it was a spaceship, you would realize you have to husband your resources and that this would change our consciousness. And he thought, I've got to start a campaign to convince NASA, which was just then heading out to the moon, to turn the cameras back at Earth and give us that image. And he thought, uh, what should I say? And he, oh, he said, I know, what. I need, I need to make a button. It was a very important medium in 1966. <laughs> And what should the button say? He said, oh, it should be a little paranoid to get people's attention. So why haven't they shown us an image of Earth from space? (laughs) And he started selling this button on the street in Berkeley. And it got picked up in the Chronicle, and it became this big national story. And two years later, NASA delivered that image. And um, that image went on the, uh, the whole Earth catalog, and it actually did galvanize the environmental movement or help do it. So there is, a, there is a very creative use of an LSD trip.
3: Um, so this last question is a little woo-woo and broad, but it's after my heart, and I, think, I hope after your heart as well. <laughs> so first, the very broad question, what does psychedelic science say about the origins of consciousness? And then, is there intelligence in plants like ayahuasca, or is it all molecular uh, reactions in the brain? Maybe those aren't, that's not a dichotomy. And I just want to add to that, that that I have personally been really tripped out and inspired by... Uh, your book, The Botany of Desire, and the framing of all Earth's history as this epic battle between the trees and the grasses, yeah. and I wonder, is, this, is all of this just another front in
1: that battle of the plants <laughs> that are the true consciousness of this world? Well, I, I did have, I mean, some of my psychedelic trips dwelled on this question of plant consciousness and plant intelligence, and... Um, You know, that sounds really weird when you say plant consciousness, but I I don't mean it in the sense of self-consciousness. I mean being aware of their environment and reacting in ways that are not just instinctual but appropriate and learned. And, And there's a lot of evidence that that's the case. And I've kind of understood intellectually that plants are subjects too. We're not the only thinking subject, acting subject in nature, that they're acting on us too at the same time, in the same way that the apple tree is manipulating the bee to you know, move its pollen around the world. Plants manipulate us, too. And I understood this as an intellectual conceit. And then I had this interesting psilocybin trip. And I felt it. I felt the presence of spirit in the plants. And um, it was the most uncanny thing. And um, I, don't, I think it was a spiritual experience, but I don't think it was supernatural. I think I was just aware of their subjectivity and that as I said earlier, egoic consciousness tends to make us objectify everything but ourselves and maybe a few loved ones. And one of the, the great gifts of, of, of a positive psychedelic experience is this recognition that consciousness is kind of spread a little more generously over the whole world than we think. And that, um, that spirits are everywhere in the sense of conscious subjects, uh, subjects with interests. And that that changes how you feel about nature, and it changes how you feel about your place in nature, and you, 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 you feel less alone, actually. It's not scary. I mean, it was a very benign feeling. All these plants wished me well. <laughs> <laughs> I know how this sounds. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's more persuasive in the book. Um, <laughs> so, there's a lot to be learned about consciousness from psychedelics. And, and, and finally, that, this is a book about the mind. Psychedelics are the tool but it's really a book about the mind. Mm-hmm. Psychedelics, Stan Grof, uh, legendary psychedelic therapist from the 60s, still alive, psychiatrist, emigrate uh, from uh, Czechoslovakia. He said, and, and I read this early in my research, and I thought this was so outrageous. He said, psychedelics would be for the study of the mind, what the microscope was for biology, or the telescope for astronomy. This seems so audacious. I no longer think it is so audacious. It's a little audacious. Um, but I think it is gonna teach us a lot about the mind and a lot about consciousness. So on that note, and and I wanna thank Ingrid for a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Yeah.
0: <laughs> thank you, thanks for your great question.